Okay, turn to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 6. Uh, this teaching should actually be three teachings. Um, you'll know that just by the title. The title of today's teaching is A Community of Holiness in a Culture of Moral Relativism Through the Practice of Fasting. That's three teachings. But we're going to do it in one teaching today. So we're on this long journey together. Um, so, right? Yeah? Okay, great. Okay, good. All right, so uh, if you're there, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. I will get here eventually, but first let me start by praying. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you and your way um, for Jesus' followers would be the narrow way that for us um, leads to life eternal now, a way of living in this world where we feel like we're living in a, the abundant life of the kingdom of God. And I pray that as we do this, we would be salt and light in our world. And I know this isn't an easy thing. It, it, will, be, can, it will continue to be more difficult, as we'll point out today. And so I pray that you would give us your grace and the power of the Spirit to live in such a way as we look like followers of Jesus, plain and simple. I pray that you would uh, anoint me today and fill me with your spirit so I might uh, communicate your truths, Lord. I, I just humble myself before my brothers and sisters and before your holy word. And I pray that you would be with our sister church, Bridgetown, who is in the same teaching today as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. So last week, um, last Sunday, hopefully you listened to last week or were part of last week. If not, go back and listen to it. I ended with a uh, this phrase that it's time to train. It's time for us to start training in uh, Christ-likeness. And I share with you a story of me dabbling on my Peloton, that like stationary bike that has a screen on it. It's basically like an Apple computer on a bike, whatever. And for the first three years I owned this bike, Ashley won it in a like online raffle thing. Um, for the first three years, I just kind of dabbled in riding this bike and something kicked in this year. I think it's me turning, like getting into the 40-somethings now uh, in age that I had this realization that I need to start training. So what I didn't share with you was what happened, what Ashley said to me when I actually made this decision. So on the Peloton bike, uh, there's this a fitness test you can take to see to, and set these things called power zones. You don't have to know about any of this stuff. It doesn't, it's not the point. But so I took this test uh, on the Peloton bike and in January, last, last month. And I told Ashley that I took this test, my wife, and she's like a, a cycling fanatic on the Peloton, like fanatic, like the kind of fanatic that whenever I'm on the bike taking a class, she comes up to the screen and clicks a couple buttons on the screen to show me that when she took that class that I'm taking, how badly she kicked my butt, like that sort of thing. And this shows it like, oh, uh, this is what I got in this class. And I'm like, uh, it's not fair. And usually I just shoo her away, go away, I don't want you around me right now. Um, anyway, so I get done with this test and uh, and, um, and she asked me, you know, how, how did you go? How did it go? What did you get on the test? I'm like, I don't know how it went. I'm just really exhausted and tired. She goes, and she pulls out her phone. And she somehow hacks into my account, like in two seconds. And then she looks at it and she's like, oh, you got this number. I don't know. I don't remember what number it was. Oh, you got this number. And I'm like, is that good? And then she hesitated and said, you should take the class again. And I was like, I, this is how I was thinking. I was thinking, she thinks I cheated because I crushed it so hard. She probably thinks I somehow cheated this class. And I said, why, do you want, why should I take the class over? And she says, uh, because I think you can do better than that. That's what she said. Um, now, I have a therapist, so don't worry about me. You can pray for us if you want to. Um, 
But, but here's the deal. The, the, my first reaction, actually, my first reaction was to laugh because it was really funny, but, uh, because she was being dead serious. Um, my first reaction was this, other than laughing, was don't judge. You can't judge how, like, my, what my baseline is. My baseline is not your baseline. You do you on Peloton, and I'll do me on Peloton, right? I'll, I'll be on there for music, and you be on there for whatever else you're on there for. And literally in the class, when you take this fitness test, the, the, the instructor says not to judge yourself, and your number is a relative number, and it only means something to you. That's what they, they say. Now, I, I share this story because it seems harmless when it comes to fitness, but this idea of relativity, the whole like you do me and, or I do me and you do you, um, we all know doesn't really stay in the realm of fitness goals. It doesn't stay in eating preferences and it doesn't stay in favorite music. Relativity has moved into our morals and ethics and our beliefs. To quote that famous speech by David Foster Wallace, this is water. This is the water we swim in, cultural relativity. So. So much so that we are habituated to think about others like this. This is how we think about other people. What you think is right is right for you, and what it means for me to love you and support you in that thing that you think is right is for me to, 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 to just say, okay, you're right, and I love you, and I support you in the thing that you think is right. This is kind of um, the, the cultural waters that we swim in. This is, of course, called moral relativism. Let me define moral relativity before we go any further. Moral relativism says that there is no such thing as universal right or wrong. Individuals and cultures are free to form their own moral truths, and those truths are always correct because there are no objective moral truths to compare them to. This way of thinking and acting has gotten into our institutions, into our schools and universities where once universities were about the pursuit of truth and virtue, and even our companies and our churches. Now, this has happened by and large through the fathers of suspicion, specifically Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche and, of course, Sigmund Freud. And it's interesting because their suspicion and deconstruction was specifically aimed at religion or a sacred order of the world, meaning they thought and they taught through their writings and teachings to be suspicious of anyone or any religion claiming there is a God who created everything and thus will hold humanity to any standard outside of ourselves. This is Nietzsche's phrase, to will your own desire as law. This is Freud who said the solution to our neurosis, the symptoms of stress and anxiety and depression that we all share was to be found in a technique that helped modern man get rid of the lingering influence of Christianity and thus learn to live autonomously without religion. And this project has by and large succeeded, carried on by people like Foucault and Jean-Paul Sartre, who we now live in a, a world that hasn't necessarily given up on objective reality. We have just made subjective reality the new objective reality. We have made subjective reality, how we feel and what we desire and our emotions about something into the new objective reality. And thus we're seeing being played out in our news stations and social media platforms is this not so subtle creep from the doctrine of liberation to a doctrine of condemnation. 
from this doctrine of liberation that has been well enacted since the 60s. Let's all be free. Let's throw off constraints of right and wrong to be free to now we're living in a world where there's condemnation. If you don't accept my vision of the world as right, then you stand on the wrong side of history and you are in danger of being canceled or outed. And this has ultimately led to moral confusion. Moral relativism leads to moral confusion. I'll use this very easy example. It's, it's a heavy example, but I think it's easy in this, in this context. Rachel uh, Dulajal, the, uh, who is a, a white woman who identified as a black woman, she was a president of a local NAACP chapter, she was outed, canceled for... Um, for identifying as a black woman, being a white woman. And she was counseled now, especially by the black community. Everyone, everyone said, this is not okay. You can't be a white person and to identify as a black person. We collectively say you can't identify as a different race, but we, we actually live in a world where actually, we, can't, we have no right to say you can't decide a different gender. Now, this is not intellectually honest, and we know. We, we, we know that that's not intellectually honest. But this seems to be the water that we swim in now. And this is part of a larger trend that the, philo the philosopher Dallas Willard called the disappearance of moral knowledge from his little book, Knowing Christ Today. In it, he writes that the, as the West secularized, the locus points of moral authority moved from God and scripture and the church to the enlightenment-based triad of science, research, and the university. And this new seed of secular authority then redefined what can be known. What can we really know? Like, we can really know things like mathematics and biology. Those are things that we can know, but we can't know things like right and wrong or God, etc. Those things are based on culture. Those things are based on how you grew up. Those things are based on like how a society decides what's right or wrong. And then what's happened since then, when moral knowledge disappeared in the name of science, it conveniently moves subjects like religion and ethics into the domain of belief and faith, by which most people mean like opinion or wishful thinking, things that we can't know. We can't really know right and wrong. We can't really know God. We can't really, you can put your faith in those things, or you can believe, or you can wishfully think those things are true, but keep them in, the, in your private life. Do not move them into the public square, because those things can't be debated. We can only talk about really Science, and, and by science, I don't, Willard didn't mean just the hard sciences, he actually also meant the science of psychology, which means, this is key, which means we live in a world where the locus of moral authority basically lies within us. This is where this process has gone full circle. The moral, our moral authority lies within us in our subjective thoughts, emotions, and feelings. And we call this science in progress. And so the moral code we live by basically says, follow your heart. Not the revealed will of God through the teachings and the way of Jesus. Not the transcendent God who created you and everything you see. We see this in the church. I mean, this is kind of a low blow, but we see this in the church really easily when people in the church, and there are a lot of people in the church that are sleeping with their boyfriend and girlfriend and say, well, I feel the peace of God about it. I just feel peace about it. I just, I prayed and I feel peace. This is that inward, this is the, that kind of thing you don't have to pray about. You, don't, you just read the Bible. Like, that's it. You don't have to pray about that. You can literally just read the Bible and get a, more, a sense of moral code or moral authority. But we don't do that. We just kind of go within now. 
And inside of this moral code, the only other rule we live by along the way is, is you can do you as long as it doesn't harm anybody. Now, the problem with that is harm requires knowledge of good and evil. But we can't agree on, on the knowledge of good and evil. And so our culture says things like love is love without any real definition of love or any authority other than what we feel love is. But there's also this rise and a lot of talk about hate right now, as in hate speech or hate crimes. But again, the problem is love, hate, and harm all require a transcendent source of moral authority. Most philosophers today virtually agree on that. You need a sense of moral, you need a, 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 a source of moral authority which is exactly what we do not have. 300 years of the best secular thought has utterly failed to produce a transcendent moral authority. Science cannot tell us how to live. You don't get from, we evolved from apes by killing off the weak in tribal war for dominance to Black Lives Matter. You don't get there from that. That's impossible. You don't get from a evolutionary worldview that the, the, the survival of the fittest all the way to Black Lives Matter. That does not make sense. It's not consistent and intellectually honest. You can't do that. You can only get to racial justice from Genesis chapter one. All human beings are created in the image of God. We are the first society in history, in the history of the world to attempt to live with no sacred order or transcendent moral authority beyond the self. The social fragmentation and the emotional epidemic of anxiety and rage are likely signs that our attempts to create this utopia apart from God, or even a society of equality and justice and happiness apart from God, are very unlikely to succeed. Douglas Murray, author and politician who describes himself as a gay atheist, says this in a recent book, that all of our grand narratives have collapsed in Western society. Religion went first, he writes, and then political ideologies went next in this postmodern era, which is defined by its suspicion towards all grand narratives. And this has led to, led to a breakdown of the modern project. And then he writes this, Quote, people in wealthy Western democracies today could not simply remain the first people in recorded history to have absolutely no explanation for what we are doing here and no story to give life purpose. This is, this is someone who is not a Christian at all. I mean, pretty far from being a Christian by his own admission. But he even acknowledges we're the first society to try to find meaning in life within ourselves and it's not working. It is breaking down everything. Now, if this seems bleak, it's because it is bleak. And if it doesn't seem bleak, it's because you have probably either distracted yourself by trying to become an Instagram influencer, or you haven't done the important work of following your mental map to their final conclusion. And my point in all of this, if you're still with me, is we need to restore a sacred order because, that, because what we have right now is not working. And so I'll blow my cover here a little bit and say that as a pastor, I do have a vision for the way we and the church must live. And it's under the sacred order of a loving God who created us with purpose and meaning and dominion, to use that Bible word, dominion. We're, we were created to live under the rule of God and thus, thus rule the earth in a, in a, 
in a God-like honoring Imago Dei sort of way. Like we're the image of God reflecting God's glory onto the world. This is what we must restore in our minds. An understanding of the world and humanity as being part of the created order and God being other, set apart, the creator. Theologians call this oneism versus twoism. Twoism says that we, we have binary built into the fabric of our created world. That's twoism. There's binary. And it all stems from the fact that we have a creator and that there's a creation. We're creation, he's creator, binary. It all starts there. It seems part of the current secular order is that we're actually trying to destroy the binary, removing the binary of male and female. Our cultural moment has us trying to flatten leadership, all leadership and institutional structures and the patriarchy and everything, removing distinctions in any binary power of authority. And this idea comes from the pagan endeavor to remove creator from the equation and just have creation, flattened creation. This is Romans 1 kind of stuff. Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. The lie of paganism is the lie that is playing out in bathrooms and dressing rooms trying to get rid of the binary. But there is twoism written into the code of our created world. Creator, creation, land and sky, night and day, male, female, good, evil. This is all Genesis 1 and 2. And from this place, we can have morality, not based on fads, but with a consistent through line from creation to new creation. And let me, mean what I, let me explain what I mean by consistent. It seems our world is becoming less moral and more moral at the same time. We just don't know what we're aiming at. An example would be race. We are having a moment of racial reckoning that has been a long time coming, reignited with the killing of Eric Gardner and Michael Brown six years ago and reaching a fever pitch last year by the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. It seems our nation wants to move towards human rights. This is right and good and needed. But where's the North Star of morality when it comes to human rights? What is it based on? What's the North Star? Where are we aiming for? How do we know if we hit it? How do we know if we actually become more moral in terms of race in our nation? How do we become more moral honoring the standard of human rights but not tear down everything else in the process or not use racial rights and racial reconciliation as a Trojan horse for all of this other ideology? My question is this. Where's the fulcrum? Where's the fulcrum by which morality hinges on? And the answer is for the secular project, there is not one. Comedian Aziz Ansari, is he, I don't know if he's canceled yet, I don't know if I can still use him as an illustration, but I'll, I will anyways, and you can email me later. But he has this comedy special that someone sent me this little clip where he talks about this. He, he says, imagine like in 50 years from now, one of the moral outrages in our society has become homelessness. And there's a street cam of you, footage of you walking past a homeless person and not doing anything. And then 50 years from now, this gets load, uploaded on the internet and then you're canceled. And the point of this whole comedy bit is that you don't know what society will deem immoral and when. We just do not know. 
When will society finally have this reckoning here or that reckoning there? And the answer is you don't know what the next moral outrage is going to be because there is no fulcrum. However, for the followers of Jesus, the fulcrum we live by is God and his authority and specifically the teachings in the way of Jesus, who is the fullness and revelation of God. And the word for Jesus is call upon us in a culture of moral relativism, and it's always been, is to holiness. Holiness in a world of relativism, holiness will be the thing we're aiming for. Holiness is what it'll feel like when we follow Jesus. Holiness in our bodies, holiness in our mind, holiness, this set-apartness. Now, one of the most repeated commands in all of Scripture is be holy as I am holy. This is what God says over and over and over throughout the Bible. It's based on this ancient idea of theosis, a, a Greek word that can be translated deification, but not in the, in the Hindu sense of becoming God, but the Jesus sense of becoming like God or being with God, in union with God. That's what this word godly means, to be godlike, to be so in union with God that you become like God, that you reflect his holiness, his otherness, Thus, holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God as we endeavor to discover God's mind in Scripture. It's this habit of agreeing with God's judgment of things. It's that phrase of hating the things God hates and loving the things God, God loves from the inside, not external, but from within. Holiness is measuring everything in this world by the standard of God, not so that we can walk around in condemnation, at all, but so that we can know what is good and what is evil. So it is he or she who most entirely agrees with God who is the holy person, that I agree with God and that even though culture goes this way, I agree with God. I agree with God when it comes to money and the poor and sexuality and all of these ethical things that Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount. I agree with Jesus. That person is a holy person. And to be like God is going to make you unlike the culture of the world. The word holy is the word uh, hagia in the original language of the New Testament. I probably butchered that, but whatever. Um, it literally means unique or special or different, or it even can be translated weird. It means we live different from society as a whole in money and sex and power and a lot of different things. But in a theological sense, the word holy means to be set apart or dedicated to God. It's not just a moral word. It's a, it's a word of, of, of consecration. For example, in the Torah, in, in the Old Testament, you have these uh, holy pots and pans in the temple. They're, they're holy pots and pans. Now, they aren't holy because they're more moral as opposed to the immoral pots and pans. Like, that's not a thing, right? That, you obviously know that. They're holy in that they're dedicated for the use in the temple. They are for the work of God. In the same way, we are human beings who are dedicated to the presence of God, to the purposes of God. It isn't just holy that you're just like so different and set apart. That, that's a part of it. But it also means dedicated for God's purposes, that your body is dedicated for the purposes of God and his kingdom moving forward. So now, finally, let's look at our text. Look at me with 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What I want you to see is how followers of Jesus talk about holiness in their bodies, in our bodies. How do we talk about it? 
And this is obviously the phrase, the theology of the body. Now, the, I do a fuller teaching on this text. This won't be long at all. But I'll do, I do a fuller teaching on this text uh, in a sermon that, that we called Sex and the Body in September of 2019. You can go back there, listen to a fuller teaching on this. But real quick, at a cursory glance, look at verse 12. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, I have the right to do anything you say. Notice those are in quotes. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. Quote, I have the right to do anything but I will not be mastered by anything. Now notice the first lines are in quotes. The Corinthians were saying this to Paul. When it comes to the way they use their bodies, I actually have the right to do anything. The the laws in our land allow me to do this with my body. And also I'm free in Christ. God is love. Let me be me. But Paul's response is this. Okay, but not everything is good for you. In fact, the things that you give yourself into, the things that you do with your body, the when you give into your desires, they will become a kind of slave master to you that we today more popularly call addiction or compulsion. I think we all know this to some degree or another, but it's true all the way down to the core of reality. We know that we are ma- when we are mainly governed by the materialistic and sexual desires, these will enslave us. These things will enslave us. We, we know these things. We literally call it being addicted to our phone or being addicted to shopping or being addicted to eating, whatever it is. We give ourselves over to these things. They're not just not beneficial for us. They actually enslave us. This is what Paul's getting at. Verse 13, you say, this is what they're saying. Corinthians saying, food for the stomach and stomach for the food and God will destroy them both. Greek philosophy taught that there is a spiritual world and there's a material world. And the spiritual was good and, and eternal, and the material was evil and temporary. Plato called the body the prison house of the soul, and that your soul, which is defined as your inner essence, is the real you. So as long as you, I mean, I'll move this into today, as long as you practice yoga and eat clean, you can do whatever else you want to your body. You just are trying to get after your soul. That's all you want is your soul to be nurtured but your body, you can do whatever you want to it. The Corinthians, like most Greeks of the day, therefore concluded, hey, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. As long as I go to church and I, and I, and I pray and I do these things, my body's just a thing. My body's desire for sex is no different than my body's desire for food. This is what Corinthians were saying. It's food for the stomach, stomach for the food. They, they need each other. Sex for my body. I have urges. I, they need each other. But listen to Paul's reply. He says this in verse 13. And this is, this is the point of this whole section. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one in body with her? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now, a few things here from this text. First, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. The word for sexual immorality is porneia. And this doesn't just mean prostitution. Porneia is a miscellaneous word for any and all sex outside of marriage. Your body was not meant for porneia, but for the Lord, meaning you were created for God. This is twoism. Creator, creation. You were created for God. Good Catholic theology would say that even our sex drive is about far more than our body's desire for an orgasm, but for our soul's desire for communion and contribution, for intimacy and generativity. 
Not even marriage can satisfy that ache in full. Only life in God can do that. The second thing is that Jesus, what Paul is pointing out is Jesus came back from the dead in a body, which says something. He wasn't this disembodied spirit. And followers of Jesus, we too will come back when the Lord returns, we'll be resurrected in a body. Our relationship to God will take place in our body forever. You've heard this thing where I get a new body in heaven. No, you don't. It's your same body, renewed. You're like, I can't wait to this. I hope my body's just be just super shred and amazing. It's the same body. You get the same body in heaven. Same body, just renewed body. Jesus didn't come back just looking like a completely different person. He came back with a renewed body. Okay. Your body matters. Your body is the locus point of our relationship with God. It is actually how you carry out your, our cultural mandate, who we were created to be in this earth, through our bodies. And the third thing about this text is sex is not just a biological act. It's actually the fusion of two souls. Paul's language here is straight out of Genesis, the line that two become one flesh. And therefore, Paul says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Run for your, from your, for your life. Run from anything outside of God's created order. And it goes on. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Notice what a high view of the body Paul has. What a high view of sex Paul has. It's easy to miss that due to our sex-obsessed nature of our culture, where sex is like a religion, people literally get their identity and sense of self and meaning and purpose from sexuality. Sex is like a soteriology in our day, the thing people look to for salvation. Now, because in some circles of the church and church history, there's been this warped view of sex as like dirty and bad, it's easy to miss that, that scripture's view of the body and human sexuality is higher than that of the sexual culture, not lower than sexual culture, but higher. When Jesus' sexual ethic was introduced in the Greco-Roman world, it was like a bomb went off. Uh, Tim Keller explains it like this. He says this in his latest book. The Christian sex ethic was revolutionary. It introduced the very idea of consent in sex and made sex not about self-fulfillment, which actually privileges those with more power, but about creating lasting community that reflects God's relationship to us. This is a higher, not lower view of sex. Modern culture sexual logic, that sex is for self-fulfillment and self-realization, ultimately depersonalizes and objectifies because it ultimately turns sex into a consumer good rather than a means to nurture a bond of covenant. It leads to a fractured community and the decline of marriage and the family. Sex outside of marriage is ultimately transactional, and so it cannot finally be intimate. And not only does sex disintegrate intimacy in relationships, but actually sex ruins the body itself. Former lesbian and atheist-turned-Catholic writer Melinda Selmes says in her book, Sexual Authenticity, and she writes, this is so insane. She says, underneath, it's kind of a long quote, but this is so good. Underneath the pop and fizzle of, of sex, sexological enthusiasm lies a fundamental despair. Not necessarily about life itself, but about the body. This seems counterintuitive. 
Surely the sexual revolution is about the celebration of the body over and against the pretense that love ends below your neck. Yet beneath beneath all the pageantry of free sex and self-love, there is a fundamental belief that the body doesn't mean anything, that it is insignificant in a literal sense, signifying nothing. You can do anything that you like with it. You can pleasure it with a vacuum cleaner or get a drunken stranger in the alleyway to whip it, and you can give it away to anyone for any reason. It's just a sort of wet machine, a tool that you can use in exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. In order to believe this, you must either A, accept that your body is not you, it is just a shell, a juicy robot, that the real you is the, is the disembodied ghost that the disembodied ghost controls, or B, that there is no such thing as human value or dignity. It's just a nice pretense that we make because we are terrified of this senseless and nihilistic universe. Ironically, Christianity, which has always been accused of putting God before man, stands alone amongst the host of modern philosophies declaring that man is a unified, complete being composed of both mind and free will and a body of which has dignity and meaning. We are a unified, complete being. And not just that, in Paul's mind, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. A temple in Jewish theology was a place of overlap between heaven and earth. It was designed as a model of God's throne room, the place where he rules Israel from. Now, under the new covenant with the coming of the Spirit in the wake of Jesus' death and resurrection, our body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our body is the place of overlap between heaven and earth. Think about that the place of God's presence, and therefore our call, is to let God rule our bodies as it is in heaven. To let God rule in our bodies and from our bodies outward from there, let God rule from our bodies. Hence the line, honor God with your bodies. Sexuality is one telling example of how we do this. Nancy Piercy in her stunning book, Love Love Thy Body, writes, what Christians do with their sexuality is one of the most important testimonies they give to the surrounding world. Sexuality has always been one of the areas where we are most different from the world, as as well as one of the areas we, we pray where we have the most to offer the world in terms of a compelling vision of an alternate way. This would mean that we would become, the church would become a community where men and women refrain from sex before marriage, where men and women seek a marriage partner not on the basis of looks and wealth, but character. The unmarried, whether divorced, widowed, or never married, are incorporated as extended family members having close relationships of both sexes and nurturing relationships with children where people with same-sex attraction are valued members and are given support for their calling and chastity. And people who have struggled with issues of sex and gender are welcomed and listened to with humility, patience, and love. Now, each of those statements will need some nuancing and probably a lot more explaining, but I think this should be the high call for a community of sexual holiness. In a culture given over to sensuality of the body in all sorts of ways where hedonism and pleasure rule as gods, we live by a whole other goal in life. Our life goal is to live life with God. Now, where Paul's example is sexuality, his theology is much broader. We are to honor God with our bodies as a whole. But sexuality has always been and has been since like the days of Jesus been the barometer of this. How do we use our bodies? Now, 
to shift gears. Now, we're going to, again, three sermons in one, right? Trinity of sermon. So shift gears. Is there a question? Is there a practice from the way of Jesus and our church rule of life that helps index us away from moral relativism of our day and towards holiness, towards a greater experience of our bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. There are many, but the top of the list for us is the practice of fasting. Fasting is a way that we index our lives toward holiness with our bodies. This is an adjacent practice that if you are struggling, and I know there's, there's a lot of people that are struggling with things like sexual addiction or pornography, this practice of fasting gets there, but not directly there. It actually does. It indexes you towards uh, overcoming this temptation, overcoming the sin in your life in an adjacent way, in an indirect way. Fasting is when you go without food to give your whole self more fully over to God. Note, go without food. Fasting is about food. A A lot of people confuse fasting with abstinence and say things like, I'm fasting social media or I'm fasting TV. That's not a thing, okay? So it's food. Food is fasting, okay? And it's a great thing to practice. Abstinence has a long tradition in the way of Jesus. We're in Lent right now, Lent, where this is a great example. But fasting is a, is, is a whole body psychosomatic practice that is very hard for Westerners to get their mind around, precisely because it's the way of saying yes to Jesus' work in your soul, not through your intellect, but through your stomach, which is weird to us. We're like, no, I should sit in the class and you t- teach me about fasting. I don't do it. I just know it. When I know it, it works its way down. That's not how it works. You actually do it through your body. I mean, I understand. I think we understand fasting when it comes to like physical health, like intermittent fasting and keto, but we don't understand that it's direct in correlation to spiritual health. But for over a thousand years, fasting was the core, was a core practice of apprenticeship to Jesus. Most Christians would fast twice a week, Wednesdays and Fridays until dinner. Even Lent, believe it or not, was originally a 40-day fast, like Muslim Ramadan, where Christians would not eat until after sundown for 40 days every single year. But with the Enlightenment, fasting as regular practice started to taper out. John Wesley wrote in the 1700s, I fear there are now thousands of Methodists, so-called, both in England and in Ireland, who, following the same bad example, have entirely left off fasting, who are so far from fasting once, twice a week, that they do not even fast twice a month. Then he says, the man who never fasts is no more in the way to heaven than the man who never prays. And I'm saying he's right. I'm not saying he's right. But Jesus seemed to think that the three core practices that followers of Jesus would live into in a Sermon on the Mount was when you pray, when you give, and when you fast. And we've come a long way from that. Very few followers of Jesus fast on a regular basis. And yet we believe this is one of the most important practices of following Jesus in our time. For those of you that are new to fasting, I'd like to direct you to a teaching series and practice on fasting up at uh, practicingtheway.org slash fasting. You can take a screenshot of that or whatever if you want to find more resources. But let me summarize why we fast for three basic reasons really quick, and then we'll tie this right back to our beginning and be done. We fast to starve the flesh and feed the spirit. We need this. The flesh in the language of the New Testament writers uh, are, are used by the New Testament writers to name that primal animal part of our body that is run by survival instincts and the desire for pleasure. 
what scientists call the animal brain. Your flesh in biblical imagery is like a beast within you. Feed it and it grows stronger. Starve it and it loses its hold on you and begins to die. And one of the best ways to starve your flesh is to literally not give your body food. The spiritual masters of the way of Jesus have long noted that both the garden temptation of Adam and Eve and the desert temptation of Jesus both had to do with food. There is a reciprocal relationship between our level of self-discipline with food and our level of self-discipline with sin. Now, of course, this has become inverted with an eating disorder, but that's a whole different subject, and you can email me if you want to know more about that. The less limits we have on our appetite, the less limits we tend to have on our other bodily appetites as well for sex or shopping or gossip or even violence. Now, confession time. Here's my confession. Life during 2020 lockdown, I found myself drinking wine every single night. Not like a bottle of wine. Most nights, no. Not like a bottle of wine, but like a glass of wine. Just like automatically going to there. Cocktails on the weekend. Seconds for dinner. And then Amazon buying without even thinking. Just like, oh yeah, psh, buy. Like all of a sudden, like it, it was, I didn't even think about this. And then came this, then after that came this listlessness in my spirit. Many of us in here can't put a finger on why we feel so disconnected from God and why temptation is so hard to fight. And we should probably be start, starting to be connecting that with how we live into our appetites. And so I began to, uh, towards the end of the year, going, I'm, 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 I'm going to stop doing this and stop doing that and start replacing these things with a more spiritual pursuit and start thinking before I just automatically start grabbing things or buying things. One of the first things that you'll notice when you start fasting is that your desire for sin doesn't necessarily go away, but it does go down, and your desire for God starts trending up. It's a way to turn your body from an enemy into an ally. The second thing why we fast is to amplify our prayers. Fasting is a way of praying with our body. It's a way of groaning in, in the power of the Spirit. As much as we hate to admit it, there is also a reciprocal relationship between our level of holiness and our level of power. The holier we are, not more self-righteous, but the holier we are, the more power we have access to in the spirit. Fasting is a way to grow in holiness and therefore to grow in spiritual power. This is, I think this is the best take of what Jesus said. Oh, that kind of demon only comes out through fasting and prayer where the disciples are, we've been praying, we've been praying, we've been praying. It's, oh, no, that demon? Oh, yeah, I know that demon. That kind of demon only, fasting and prayer works for that one. You need special power for that demon, and it comes with fasting and prayer. Thirdly, we fast to stand in solidarity with the poor. This is the fasting that, uh, that's written of in Isaiah 43. It's a way to stand in solidarity and at a practical level to take the money you would have spent on food and give it to those who have no food at all. Really, I, I think this is, we're, I'm going to try to, we'll do a little podcast where we try to break down all these different like tips and tricks and like how to like fast in ways that are, that are life-giving because you could get stuck in a rut. You can start like not feasting and only fasting and those things are important or like just fasting but not giving. Like you need, uh, you need more rhythm when it comes to this. Now, how do we end this giant teaching on every subject the Bible has ever talked about? 
with all the practices that we'll talk about, but especially fasting, we must keep in mind the goal to experience delight in God. Richard Foster has said, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. See, fasting works by delighting in God in a strange way. Fasting works the delight in God out, the way that we delight in God in a really strange way, and it works like this. It does it, especially when you are first starting to fast, by the feeling of being hungry and then the feeling of being anxious and the feeling of being sad. Now, how does that end into delighting in God? Here's how. Because you start to realize how dependent we are on food to feel happy. Oh my gosh, I need food to be happy. And then we realize how dependent we are on lots of things to be happy. Oh my gosh, I need money to be happy. I need a certain kind of living to be happy. I need a certain relationship status to be happy. I need others' opinions of me to be this or that to be happy. And then we realize that in spite of all the talk and culture about freedom, we're actually in bondage to our own desires. And the gift of fasting teaches us to be happy even when we don't get what we want. Because in this life, we don't get what we want. The sooner that we learn that and get that into our bodies, the sooner we can be really free and really happy. And fasting can get us there. It's a way of training your body to be happy when it doesn't get what it wants. When your life or your child or your work or even God himself doesn't give you what you want, you don't freak out and then revert to this like going just ape. You're calm. You're at peace. You know the deep joy of contentment in God. And so our goal and motivation to fast must be deeper must be a deeper experience of God himself to purify our temple in order to seek God. Now, I'll really close by saying this. Holiness and fasting are not methods to make God love us more or for our salvation. I think that should be, I mean, I think that's pretty basic in the, in the teaching of our, of our church, but I want to say that very explicitly now. It's not a method for salvation. Rather, it's the opposite. It's the way that we work out our salvation. It's the way that when we say we are disciples of Jesus and we want to become like him, it's the ways that we actually habituate our lives to become like Jesus, to become holy as he is holy, to start rewiring the way that we think so that we agree with God. This all happens to the practice and this very important practice of fasting. This week, you're going you're gonna to be hearing a lot of other stuff through this through a podcast we'll be, listed, we'll be, we'll be um, putting out later this week and also in, our, in your community groups. And we want to work this into our community. We want you to slowly start fasting with like fasting a meal during the week. We try to fast on Wednesdays, but you can choose whatever day. Fasting just a meal, just lunch, try there. And start expanding it and expanding it where you're going through series or, or seasons of fasting yourself. I think this is... This is really, really important to try to get um, self-discipline, like, uh, like um, the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control, into our bodies. Let's pray. Lord, I, I've said a lot. My throat hurts. I've said a lot. And um, And I, and I can imagine that in this, 
this survey of a few different topics or some things that the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on or there might be things that even our flesh is fighting against. I pray right now that you would put on us the mind of Christ where we would zoom out and say, we are created, you are creator. You are God and we are not. We stand before you in humility. We say, you're the Lord. Salvation comes from you, God. Truth comes from you. Lord, we want to just even notice, even in our bodies as we were listening, the places of tension, the places of anger, the places of ways that we have believed and fallen in this trap of believing the way the world thinks and not the way that you think. Lord, make us truly your disciples that follow in your way and look like you in this world. Make us salt and light, God. May this be a moment where we draw a line in the sand. We know that there are Christian leaders that are falling all around us, and it's so frustrating and maddening and sad and confusing. Let holiness start within us, God. Is there any way, search us and know us, that we bring our sin before you places that are not aligned to your will and your way. We do not rationalize those or justify those that we call sin, sin. We say, search us, start with us, and know us, God. Forgive us our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, help us to live lives that are worthy of the calling by which we've been called. We thank you, Jesus, for your gospel, for your saving power, for your Holy Spirit. Fill us now. In Jesus' name, amen.